Welcome to the Wait and Speak podcast. I'm your host, Rikweer White. Today's episode considers the impact of COVID-19 on the food system in South Africa. I spoke to Dr. Tracy Davids, who heads the Commodity Markets and Foresight Division at the Bureau for Food and Agricultural Policy, also referred to as BFAB. Tracy is an established specialist in agricultural market analysis. Her focus includes commodity market modeling, price formation, spatial price relationships, competitiveness and international trade. She has extensive, um, an extensive record of international collaboration, contributing regularly to international market outlook publications and conferences. She has a consistent record of publications in peer-reviewed journals, and she holds a PhD in agricultural economics from the University of Pretoria. And without further ado, here's the interview. Hi Tracy, welcome on the Wait and Speak podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thanks, yes, it's great to be here. Just uh, just as a bit of background for our listeners um, who might not know, uh, who, who is BFAB? And um, maybe tell us a bit more about the work that you do there and specifically around the, the commodity markets and the strategic foresight element. So BFAB is an independent research unit. Uh, we were founded in 2004. We're a multidisciplinary team of researchers, but all of us share a passion for the agriculture and food sector. So we would like to see an environment within which agriculture can really flourish and be globally competitive, um, allowing it to support growth, food security and development in South Africa, but also the rest of the African continent. So to contribute to this, we objectively inform decision making along the food and beverage value chains, both for public and private sector clients. We provide independent research based analysis based on a suite of economic and simulation models, as well as a wide network of collaborators and, and of course, some years of experience in the industry. We believe um, in the value of long term partnerships and we work across the value chain. So we look at value chain structure and efficiency, generate market and business intelligence implications for producer level profitability, um, resource constraints, analysis of food prices and the consumer environment. And then also more recently, monitoring and evaluation of multiple developing farmer programs. We recently also invested into the Integrated Value Information System, or IVAS, which is a, gener- a geospatial platform um, that generates, um, that integrates data, it visualizes insights, and all of this just enhances our strategic su- decision support. This is also the system that we utilize to create the COVID-19 information portal, which is publicly available through our website and provides just some baseline information to support key decisions in this time of uncertainty. That's great. So I'll definitely uh, share the link to, to your website in the, in the podcast notes. Um, just going into that, I've, I've had a look, I saw there's really a lot of useful information on the website. Um, broader than the documents that you publish on the website, um, what is the method of working? Do you guys do specific commissioned research? Um, could you maybe tell us a bit more about that element as well? Yes, exactly. So we have a number of key clients that have been with us for a long time and also are constantly doing work for new ones. Um, and that that's very project specific. So definitely it, it considers what, what the demand and what the requirements is from the client. And then we put a package together to best serve that and best assist them um, in their decision making. Awesome. Um, then I think just moving on to our discussion around the whole COVID-19 and the impact it has on the food system, we've seen uh, consumer behavior has changed, uh, especially domestically with the announcement of the lockdown. Um, what has been the impact of this announcement on, on consumer behavior and how do you see this uh, changing as, as we get go through the lockdown and perhaps a bit more into the distant future? 
So I think this is a very important point, and maybe I'll start by saying that we already saw some changes in consumer behavior prior to the lockdown, um, purely because disposable income has come under so much pressure in this low growth environment. So the impact of COVID-19 containment measures, and specifically the lockdown, which is obviously the most stringent we've imposed, is of course accelerating those trends quite drastically. Um, if you add to that factors such as the low growth environment that was already an issue before, um, and the recent downgrade by Moody's, we really find ourselves in a bit of a perfect storm. Um, when you consider the impact of the lockdown, it's it's really twofold. So firstly, it relates to income um, and the effect thereon. And then secondly, also to changes in, in product preference that consumers um, would be buying. So if we consider buying power, um, the lack of income for many house, households through this period obviously affects that quite strongly. Um, consumers basically have two options. So either you buy less food altogether, um, or alternatively, you look at a different product mix, which is maybe a little bit cheaper. So we already saw a shift to cheaper product options prior to the lockdown. This is particularly true for lower income groups, but also to, to maybe a lesser extent in the higher income brackets. Um, research conducted by our consumer focus team suggests that coping strategies, if you, if you want to call it that, when affordability becomes a problem, includes factors such as switching to different brands, uh, maybe your no-name product brands, and also decreasing dietary diversity, which would entail less fresh produce and meat, um, but more staple foods that are obviously cheaper, but still provide a much needed energy source. So among lower income, more vulnerable groups, this is obviously a concern because diets are not that diverse to begin with. Um, and it affects things like your immune system, which would be critical to fighting the disease. That also links then to the second factor of preferences, um, where we're starting to see greater preference for products that are less perishable. So maybe because consumers would be buying food less frequently through the lockdown, but specifically in vulnerable rural areas, also because the options of where to buy are much more limited than what they were before. So before fresh produce could be bought frequently from street vendors and hawkers, uh, but now those aren't operating anymore. So amongst fresh products, we've seen fairly strong demand still for vegetables, um, particularly your less perishable ones. Uh, but the demand for fresh fruit, for instance, is, is maybe a little bit weaker. Mm. Yeah, so, so I guess the, the impact varies um, in terms of income groups. And, and you rightly mentioned the lower income groups and the impact of street vendors. So, so that's definitely a concern. And then um, something else um, is, for example, restaurants. I take it there's going to be some sort of a shift if restaurants that are closed, those that are clo closed, that people rather prepare food at home, um, those that can. Exactly, yes, because these can't operate uh, through the lockdown, then you see um, a lot of your higher income consumers that would typically be consuming food in that environment on a fairly frequent basis, now rather procuring more from the supermarket and, and having, cooking that food and having it at home. Mm -hmm. um, and then just linked to this question, what do you see as the you know, the type of impact on the food system and the risk, you know, consumers might be concerned what, what, what's the risk of running out of food. Um, we saw the incidences of a bit of panic buying as well. Um, what, what's your view on that? And, and um, you know, I think we, we do have a, quite a strong system, but uh, yeah, let's hear from you. Definitely. I think, you know, it's a simple question, but it has a complex answer, really. Um, I think at national level, South Africa is, is definitely food secure. We're a net exporter of agricultural food products by some distance, and we have a very strong supply chain. Um, I think, you know, we have seen in, in the recent past 
some some shops with empty shelves, but that really just reflects panic buying from your consumer side. And obviously, when your retailers, they plan stocks according to normal volumes. So when this panic buying happens, then they did run out, but they did also restock quickly. Given that food is an essential good, um, this value chain, it continues to operate through the lockdown. Um, so availability is really not expected to be an issue. There are certain products where we're net importer, um, commodities such as wheat or rice, I can think of quickly, um, which could become less available if logistic systems don't hold up. I think there's plenty supply in the global market, but if logistical systems don't hold up, given all the restrictions, then, then that could become an issue. They will also become more expensive given the depreciation we've seen in the RAND. But South Africa will have enough food. Um, we're expecting the second largest maize crop in history. And this should also see prices of staples like maize meal come down from 2019 levels, which is, of course, good news for consumers where buying power is a bit um, of a challenge. At the same time, we, we must acknowledge that there's still multiple challenges in terms of food security at household level. So that suggests that while we're really good at producing the food, maybe we're a little bit less efficient at distributing it um, into these more vulnerable areas where, where your low-income consumers often are. So this is also where the challenge of the lockdown is exceptionally big. Our food value chain is very resilient. Um, it's strong. And while they have faced some challenges, it continues to function pretty well under the circumstances. But a large section of production and sales actually occur in the informal sector, which is not operating as before. Um, so while some spaza shops are still running um, and, and they have some challenges, but for the most part, they remain operational. The informal food retail sector, I'm thinking like bucky traders and street vendors, they seem to be excluded from the initial exemption list. So while you can understand that there's risk to movement um, in and out of these high density areas, you also have to acknowledge that this group plays such an important role in getting affordable food options into the poor and vulnerable communities. Um, so disruption of these operations, then it exacerbates the challenges for the poor households. And also things like your smaller informal producers, um, guys that would typically be selling live chickens, for instance, directly to the consumers. They play a very important role where refrigeration facilities, for instance, are limited or, or non-existent. And if they can't operate, then that impacts on availability and then again, dietary diversity in these regions. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's also a bit of a learning curve, obviously, with all the regulations being passed to try and implement the lockdown. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, as things come out, the points that you've mentioned now, um, you know, we can we can adjust and make make accommodations for exactly for street traders and those, those types of other channels of, of getting food to to consumers. Definitely, I think you know the, 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 those regulations had to be drawn up fairly quickly, and I think there was a lot of collaboration and input provided. But we have also seen them evolve already. Um, so so one would hope that this is something that they can maybe have a look at again. I know that. In some other countries where they've also imposed lockdowns, these informal markets, that they continue to function within, obviously, a set, set of, of regulations concerning health and safety, um, but it should be possible. So whilst we're talking about regulation, uh, what are some of the challenges on the farm level uh, in terms of inputs, transport and market access? And then just something else on the input cost side, uh, we've seen the dramatic changes in the global oil markets with lower oil prices. Uh, pushing through into lower lower fuel prices specifically diesel which is a, a big input for many farmers but then in south africa we've also seen a weaker rand dollar exchange rate so um, that that works in the opposite direction um, we have obviously 
um, oil prices and the rand dollar exchange rate that influences the ultimate uh, fuel prices that uh, producers pay. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the you know the the reduction in oil price that's definitely something that will benefit our producers from an input perspective. But then you have the reduction the 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 weakening of the exchange rate that offsets at least some part of that. Um, but broadly, if one thinks food value chain, you know, it's it's a complex chain. It it extends well beyond your typical input production processing markets. Um, it includes a number of support services, um, which really enable it to to function well and and properly. If you think, naming just a few, transportation of, of both products and workers, logistics, health and safety inspections, all of these are critical um, to keeping the chain functional. At farm level specifically, I think it's still early days. Um, the biggest challenge we've seen to date probably relates to, to transportation, um, especially getting essential workers um, to and from work. Um, you know, the capacity of transportation has been reduced and additional health and safety measures have also been imposed. These are critical, and I think most agribusinesses have been really vigilant in ensuring the health and safety of the workers, which really are operating on the front line. Um, but that does, of course, have implications for things like transport, the number of people working at any one time and so on. I think if one looks specifically at imports, um, we have to say that South Africa imports a lot of inputs. So things like fertilizers, some animal feed products, um, plant protection, even machinery and equipment. So while we do produce sufficient food in South Africa, um, in many cases, it's quite reliant on imported inputs. So the efficiency at ports, which are not operating at, at full staff quota, um, this becomes critical. Um, also, one has to consider availability in international markets, which could become an issue of the, if the outbreak lasts very long, but at this point um, still seems to be working fairly well. But then inspections and port operations, as I said, this is, is critical to get the product through, both in terms of imported inputs, but also in terms of, of market access and getting products that are predominantly export oriented out. So linked to this, whilst farmers can continue farming, uh, what is the broader impact? We may have touched on some of the issues already, but what's, what's the broader impact on agriculture? Um, if you look at the local versus the um, international market and then especially the impact on export producers. So I think I've mentioned before, I think the, the biggest short term challenge at this point that we've picked up is, is in the logistical system. So getting products moved and distributed and also getting uh, moving people, um, essential workers. So I've spoken about the concerns in the informal chain, but I think in the formal chain, it, it really is continuing to function pretty well under the circumstances. That's not to say that there aren't challenges. They are cropping up um, and, and so far mostly related to, to transportation. Um, Market-wise, I think we're still operating fairly well. Um, livestock auctions are continuing, albeit with restrictions on the number of people, but they are still functioning. Things like fresh produce markets are still running. Uh, I think it's still early days to really say in terms of volumes, but initial reports that, that we're getting from market agents suggest that the volumes are fairly comparable to this time last year. All of this is good news. And we have to remember also that exporting industries have to deal with this reduced efficiency in the ports due to limited staff being in operation. So this effect differs quite vastly across industries. If you think something like table grapes, um, they're right at the back end of their season. So the bulk of the product was still moved out fairly efficiently. But things like apples and pears, you know, they're, they're right in, in the peak season now. And citrus is just 
at the beginning of their season, but citrus, of course, being our biggest volume export product. So it's going to be significant volumes that have to move through the ports um, in the coming weeks and months. So while products are still going out, um, this is, of course, very good news. Um, it is definitely going slower. Many pack houses are operating with reduced staff numbers, which enables them then to prioritize the, the health and safety um, factors for their workers. At the ports, things are going slower due to skeleton staff. Um, there have been concerns here and there about container availability, which one would have to keep an eye on, because many ports in the world are, are much slower. You know, they're clearing products much slower than what they were before the containment measures were introduced. Um, but yeah, one has to commend the fact that products are still going out and operations are still continuing. I think there's there's maybe a concern for sectors that weren't explicitly included in the list of ex essential food goods. I'm thinking, for instance, wine. Um, you know, they're facing huge challenges. They were at least able to finish the harvesting process, but then currently they're not able to sell domestically and they're not able to export through the lockdown. Um, so this, of course, then causes huge concern on, on the market front. Mm. Okay, and, and and I think linked to that as well, then a bit of a also a broader question. You know, obviously at this stage, the whole COVID nineteen is a bit of a wild card. You see some estimates of economic impacts, uh, but I think it's still early days. Especially here, we're just in the first week of of the domestic lockdown. Um, so obviously people can make estimates based on some assumptions, um, but it's, that's definitely going to change over time. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming an exposed type of impact study will probably give us a better idea towards the tail end of this crisis. But uh, what, what's your take um, on, on estimating impacts at this stage? Yeah, of course, I think one can do a lot of work now. Um, you know, it's always a trade-off between how early you get estimates out there, which are useful even if you have to make many assumptions. Um, but you know, in this case, concerning the length and the severity of the outbreak, both here and globally, those assumptions would have to be quite strong. Um, the situation has just been so dynamic, as you said, it you know, you'd have to adjust those assumptions almost on a daily basis. But there is still value in in putting information out there and, and sometimes you, you can work with a range of possible outcomes. You know, we do a lot of scenario analysis which which could inform something like that. Yeah, no, totally. Um, but I, I think amidst all the uncertainty and, and worrying things, it's it's good to hear that I think there's a lot of collaboration across industry and government. And from the work that you're doing and the updates that you're doing, I think that's that's just um, helping um, helping us to navigate this this uncertainty. So so that's awesome. Um, Tracy, just to to close off with, you've mentioned the BFAB annual baseline. Um, maybe you can just give a bit more detail on what's typically included and then I assume the COVID-19 situation will likely be a, a big feature element of the 2020 edition. Definitely. I think in the short term, we're keeping fairly busy with the COVID-related challenges. Um, within our team, we're continually trying to put out good information to support decision makers through this time of uncertainty. And we've also just rolled out an end-to-end agro-food chain tracker which enables critical role players to report confidentially on any issues and challenges that do crop up in the, f up in the value chain on a 48-hour cycle, um, and then generating reports which go to the Joint Command Center, which can then act um, and take, take resp appropriate responses and measures in place um, to be able to keep the operations as efficient as possible. As far as the baseline goes, that's something that we put out every year. Um, it provides a fundamental 10-year outlook for the agricultural sector in South Africa, 
it's obviously more of a longer term focus, but I think the impact of COVID-19 has been so severe, one, one simply can't ignore it. It will certainly be front and center within the new edition. We normally launch in August, so hopefully by then we'll have a little bit more clarity on the spread and, and therefore the ultimate impact of the disease. Um, but it certainly can't be ignored in the short term. And I think the effect on the broader population and the economy as a whole will certainly last well beyond the actual outbreak period, which at this point still remains uncertain. Um, so in that regard, it will definitely be a key consideration. I think if one looks to the future, um, you have to first consider the point that you're starting from. And that we certainly will do. Yeah, I think definitely, um, in addition to all these challenges, I think um, the, the opportunity for change is also there. Um, and, and I think post-2020, the world will never never quite look the same in how we do things. I think the, the impact, besides the health and, and economic impacts um, of, of the virus, will also extend in terms of how we organize and how things are done. So um, we'll see how that how that develops. develops. Uh, but Tracy, thank, thank you so much. It was great speaking to you. Um, and, and thanks for sharing your, your knowledge and, and the great work that you're doing. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, the Wait and Speak podcast is available on the podcast website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. Thank you for listening.